0: head to the main message this morning and we'll be looking at Daniel and uh, we'll be looking at chapter three and so let's read from verses one to seven this morning as we seek to continue this uh, series on Daniel and I pray you've been blessed so far and uh, let's see what the Lord has for us today. Daniel chapter three verses one to seven. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counsellors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counsellors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, he fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Let's... uh. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to Him. Father in heaven, we do thank you for Your Word, and we thank you this morning that we have an opportunity to learn from it. And I pray that you would use me as an instrument, Father, to share what truth you've shared with me uh, with my brethren here. And I pray that you would bless them mightily, that we would grow through this Word, and that we would uh, grow further into the image of Your Son. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the for Your precious Word that You've preserved and granted to us. May we continue to stand firmly upon its precepts, its laws, and Father, everything that it has to tell us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, sometimes in life, um, you just have to say no. Um, It's nice to say yes to people. I mean, I I like to say yes to people when someone asks me something. uh, But sometimes you just have to say no. You know, one of the lessons I learned in business a long time ago was Uh, Not to say yes to everything, even though you'd like to please everyone, because where your focus is on pleasing people, uh, it can lead you to make foolish decisions, which end up having bad consequences down the road. And the same really goes for our faith too. You can't, in terms of our faith, be a people pleaser, and at the same time, try and please God at the same time, because those two things often just don't follow the same path. And so oftentimes, um, we, we find ourselves displeasing people um, uh, when we're trying to please God. And that's okay. And that's that's one of the things that, uh, that has to occur if you want to put God first in your life. Um, but what about where there's a king? And that king has essentially the power over life and death. And he holds your life and your situation in his hands and he demands something from you. doesn't just ask it. (laughs) What do you do? And how hard would it be to say no to someone like that? Well, today uh, we'll be looking at three young men and how they handled that particular situation when their jobs and they were in very, very important jobs and their positions and their their livelihoods were at stake here. So that's what we're looking at uh, today. So let's see how this particular passage starts off. So after King Nebuchadnezzar, you'll remember in the last chapter, um, declared that Daniel's God was the God of gods because he was able to give Daniel the interpretation and the dream that he had had. And and he said once once he realized that none of his other magicians and sorcerers and, and astrologers and Chaldeans or wise men could help him regardless of where they turned to, uh, he made a declaration that Daniel's God was the god of gods and the question we have now is did he end up turning to that God um, and 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 forsake his other gods well the answer is no he didn't forsake his other gods uh, he didn't forsake and and, and turn to uh, Jehovah or the, the the god of Daniel um, instead we see him now and this may be many years later by the way it's not just necessarily the next very next thing that he did but um, but the next thing we see recorded about him is that he creates a golden statue for everyone to worship. And one thing we know for certain that it wasn't a statue of Jehovah. It wasn't a statue of Daniel's God because the Bible simply says that he can't be likened to anything uh, in the world. Uh, no, we see um, as uh, with Nebuchadnezzar, we see uh, a rebellious nature in this king. Uh, we see that even though he had experienced uh, God's amazing power, his grace, his mercy, and the truth that came from him, we see him not turning to him, but holding on to the gods that he was already serving, which really um, is not a surprise if you look at it. Um, We see in Nebuchadnezzar, the same rebellious nature that exists in everyday people that we meet. Um, they may know the truth. They may have experienced God's love or grace in, in a particular way. Um, they may have learned some amazing thing regarding him or or heard the gospel uh, from the lips of the people that, uh, that follow him and worship him. Um, they may have understood some uh, truth about God, the Bible says, even from the heavens, that they look, uh, they look above it. Um, they may know the truth, but their flesh still finds a way to hold on to their old gods, to magnify them even more. And this is what had happened with Nebuchadnezzar. The people of the world, the Bible's teachers, from the very beginning, have been in rebellion against God and his authority over them. They, in almost every case, choose to create a God Um, after their own image, after their own likeness, or they create a God to suit themselves, in other words. And they they bow down to that God, and then they expect other people to bow down to that God as well. In order to do this, they create, they have to create, really, in essence, their own reality. And then the language to go along with that reality that they've tried to create. But the Bible clearly teaches, and the God that we believing the God that we serve the God who created everything in the universe and reality itself says to us and in fact our own our own um, understanding says that there is no such thing as a relative reality which means my reality is different to your reality is different to someone else's reality when it comes to God especially in response to this there is either you accept the truth or you don't. You accept reality or you don't. And 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 if people uh, hang around long enough not accepting reality, it ends up coming back to bite them. Psalm uh, 2 says, verse 1 to 3 says, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? In other words, something that isn't real. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, um, what's common in all the world, and this speaks about the heathen raging, they get, uh, they get angry because they don't want to be tied down um, by God. So you create a God, they create a God that suits themselves. Man is, the Bible says or teaches, rebellious by nature. We have a fallen nature which always seeks to make an idol, an idol that's precious to that person. As you'll notice, that Nebuchadnezzar made a a god of gold. And they make this god because they need something to worship. Everyone is worshipping one thing or another. And so people will make a god to suit themselves, and they'll worship that god, and they'll go chasing after that god for the rest of their lives. Sometimes that god even looks like them. The moral of the story is that eventually every person will have to face reality in this life or in the next. And it will not look like the reality that they've created in their own mind. At that point, when they face reality, reality will most likely be terrifying. The first commandment, of the 10 says that there is only one God and that we are to worship him alone. The second commandment of the 10 says not to make any idol for ourselves, not of anything in heaven, not of anything on the earth, and neither of anything under the earth. We are not to bow down to these things. We are not to worship these things. This sermon is about the first and second commandments. And unfortunately, The world, in general, has broken these two commandments straight off the bat. We don't even have to get to thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit adultery. Most of the people um, have broken all the first four laws before we even get to the laws that, um, that describe how we are to interact with each other. this chapter we're looking at, chapter 3, begins with King Nebuchadnezzar erecting a statue and commanding everyone who was in authority in power and who was representative of people from all over his kingdom. You'll understand that King Nebuchadnezzar by this stage had actually conquered a number of different groups of people and, and had subjugated them and had set, like the Romans did with Pilate, they set rulers and governors over various people um, in, in the provinces. Now, this particular um, statue that he erected was quite special to him. In fact, it was probably the largest statue ever seen uh, in um, Babylon, and it was a big deal. So he called all these representatives from various uh, from the various areas of uh, of uh, Babylon as the empire and told them to all come. And it gives a whole list of different representatives that uh, that he had uh, commanded to come and meet at this particular place. So when the when the scriptures say, you know, the nations and different nations and tongues, it doesn't mean the whole world saw this particular statue. What it means is all those people from those various places, whether they were uh, indigenous to those areas and had their own, own language or, or they were nationals from a different country that he had conquered, he told them all to come over uh, to Babylon, the the capital, and they were to all bow down, regardless of whatever other gods they worship. Now, this statue was quite a, a decent-sized uh, thing. It was around, by our, our calculations, about 27 metres tall. Now, that's uh, by just basic numbers, roughly or almost up to 10 storeys high. And it was about three metres wide. So this is a huge, huge deal. Um, the statue was placed in a plain. So, in other words, it had enough flat ground around it that it could be seen from a long way off and this plane it says is was near the the city of babylon so it's right near the, it's near the capital in a nice uh, area that was probably elevated so people could see it even more and so the idea was that the city of babylon could see this statue and they would be obviously impressed by it um and they they would when the band started playing they would begin to worship it And so this image was made of gold. Now, probably not solid gold um, because something 27 metres tall and three metres wide um, would be quite difficult to work with at that height even to get it up like that. Um, They probably had made it from either stone or wood and then overlaid it with gold, which was a very common practice for making large idols in those days. Actually... If you want to take some time, you can look at Jeremiah chapter 10 because Jeremiah chapter 10 describes what they used to do. They used to chop down a tree and they used to overlay it with silver and gold and they used to deck it out like a person. And, um, and, and God, through Jeremiah, tells his people, even though they may see these uh, enormous things um, that are decked out like people and they may look like you know, scary sort of things, He says, "Don't be afraid of them because they can't do anything to you." He actually says to them, "They're simply a block of wood, fashioned to look like a being, but they can't hear, they can't speak, and they even have to be moved around by people." Um, So, in this particular, in this particular case, Jeremiah's writings um, may have even gotten to these three men. You see, because they were contemporaries, so Jeremiah's writings may have been heard or read by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they now found themselves facing this huge statue. And there are two possibilities about what this statue was of, because it actually does not tell us what this was a statue of. Um, One possibility is that Nebuchadnezzar made this image of his god, Marduk, uh, which he considered to be the greatest of gods, and Babylon was... Was filled with gold, filled with statues. It had, like I think I've mentioned about forty-seven temples, and the place was riddled with I- idols all over the place. And you can imagine um, Shadrach, uh, Ne, I've got to get these guys: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the way, here's a, a bit of a, a tidbit of information for you, if you didn't already know it. I'm not sure if I've mentioned it. The the place we call Bendigo in Victoria is actually named after Abednego. Thanks, Alan, for that uh, piece of information the other day. Um, it's actually a mispronounced mispronunciation of the word Abednego. Bendigo. So Bendigo is named after a uh, named after a, uh, a a Jew. It's named after a a person in the Bible, um, and this fellow. Um, who was particularly named after. Apparently, he was a boxer or some sort of a fighter that was very popular in those days, and his name was Abednego. He'd been named after this character in the book of Daniel. But when they went to name Bendigo after him, they sort of got it wrong. They mispronounced it. And so we have Bendigo. Um, so when you think of Bendigo, you can think of Daniel now. Anyway, so these three um had probably read Daniel's writings even, and they they probably understood. Well, you know, when you're in front of these things, don't be afraid of it. You don't have to worry about it. And now Nebuchadnezzar's probably made a, a his own god, which was already known as the god of gold. Okay, and that he was the chief god of Babylon. Um, if you turn to Daniel chapter five verse four with me, you'll notice something there when they actually, it speaks about them worshipping their gods. So Daniel chapter five, verse four says they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone. So they had their gods of gold and and different precious metals. And they, they had, look, if you look at it, Gods of gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, and stone indicate that they, they, they worshipped a plethora of gods. They were polytheists by every, by every definition. Uh, and I'm assuming the god of gold was more precious than silver in those days and more precious than brass and iron. So Marduk, who was the chief of their gods, was the god of gold. So it's very possible that Nebuchadnezzar had made a god of Marduk, because he had by this stage grown even more powerful than he was when he had that dream. And he this may have been also some years after he destroyed Jerusalem completely. Um, so it seems Nebuchadnezzar had not only grown in power, but he wanted to may possibly glorify his God because of the great victories and success that he had um or maybe glorify himself, which is the second option here. You see, Nebuchadnezzar spake, and and if you look at chapter 3, verse 14, you'll notice it says, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? And verse 18 says, But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So there may be a distinction over here, um, but there may may be the god muttered. There are many who believe that the king had actually made an image of himself and wanted to be worshipped as a god as well. They see a link between... The dream that he had, if you remember, he had a he had a dream of a statue which has a head of gold and a, a chest of uh, of silver and a stomach of bronze and or brass and then legs of iron and then he had the feet. Um, some people see that oh look at that he he saw that and he wanted to, he didn't want to um, believe that his kempai could ever be destroyed and so he made a, a, a an image of complete gold. Well, yeah, I'm not sure about that link to be honest with you. I'm not sure how he could have made. A statue with uh, clay feet um, that would have withstood a head of gold, and that was the the the, the point of the, uh, the one of the points of the uh, the the statue as well. Originally, it was that it was actually top heavy, so he probably couldn't have made a statue like that anyway. But by the same token, he was the head of gold. His kingdom was the golden kingdom, so for him to make a gold statue of himself probably was lined up with that. But either way. He was getting a, a fairly big head, by the looks of it. Um, many think, uh, as I've read some commentaries on this particular matter, uh, think that he made the statue to commemorate himself as the golden king or the golden empire, um, and so he made this golden thing so that he would be worshipped as well. And now the actual dimensions of the uh, of the statue. Are relatively the same as a, as a person, so it's 27 meters high and and three meters wide. Those dimensions are similar to the to the shape of a, of a standing person, and a man who is upright. But um, the god Marduk was also a standing figure in their in their culture. He was a standing upright man. He was he had the uh, the body of a man. Um, so there's nothing that really pushes it one way or the other. Um, The other thing that that may indicate that uh, this was a statue of himself rather than God was his response to to the three's determination not to worship that image, um, which was, and who is that God that can deliver you out of my hand? So it seems as if um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had quite an inflated view of himself, that's for sure. So whether it was a statue of Marduk or Nebuchadnezzar himself may be irrelevant, may be um, uh, not even necessary to work out. I'm probably leaning more towards Marduk, to be honest with you. Um, But the thing is here that it boils down to, whether it was Marduk or whether it was Nebuchadnezzar himself, it boils down to idol worship and how the people of God were going to respond to a decree that forced them to bow down and worship this idol, you see, the Bible tells us that it was against their faith. It was it was something that was against uh, God's uh, commands to do that. Um, it seems from the previous chapter that Nebuchadnezzar may have come to an understanding that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was indeed a God, because he obviously makes that proclamation. And maybe he may even thought to himself, maybe he's the god of the gods. Okay, but he it didn't force him to let go of his own gods, and he probably believed in the god of um, the god of these three of the god of the Jews. Um, but he hadn't let go of his own gods, the gods who he believed had given him so much success until this point. So the assumption was that his gods. And this statue probably represented either his God or himself and was supposed to be worshipped. Either way, what he ordered to happen with respect to this image would come into direct conflict with the faith of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. um, Because their God, the God, did not recognize and does not recognize nor acknowledge the existence of any other God except for himself. Now, when you're in the midst, when you're in a, a monotheistic faith that does not recognize his God, does not recognize other gods at all, um, and you're in the middle of a polytheistic nation uh, with a king who is polytheistic, who has his own gods, well, you're headed for a standoff. Um, so they may accept and believe in every other god that everyone else had they may have said yeah that's okay um but when if you came along and said no none of your gods are actually real i'm not going to bow down to any of them because they're all fake and my god says i'm not allowed to do that anyway um you're, you're headed for a standoff so after the image was erected king nebuchadnezzar sent out this command to everyone uh, of importance, uh, government officials and, and rulers, and and people who were representative of their uh, particular provinces, um, to come on this specific day, which was a dedication of this of this image. So, it must have taken a while to put this thing together and to organise all this stuff, uh, and to give them time to get there. It wasn't something that happened overnight, obviously. Um, But the gathering of all these people and the mentioning of all these various uh, levels of government and leaders represents how important this particular uh, ceremony was uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, how important it was to him. This was a big deal for him. And so after they all gathered and found themselves standing at the front of this particular uh, statue, um, the command was given by the, the, this, this person who made this pronouncement that everyone had to bow down when the music started playing. okay So when they heard the Babylonian orchestra start playing, um, they were to bow down and worship this particular idol all together all at the same time. And you'll notice it mentions the, all, the list of all the instruments. And the reason it does that is because it wants to give the impression that this was a full orchestra. That was playing. This wasn't just a you know a guy on a guitar or a guy on a, on a set of drums. This was their, This was a Babylonian orchestra, okay, with all the various instruments all playing together. And so this the idea was that you had this grand uh, music starting up, which was to lift everyone up and to cause them to worship uh, this particular statue. Um, and if you look at it uh, in these days, uh, in these days of, uh, of King Nebuchadnezzar, um, it was a bit like Hinduism. No, it's a bit like the, your faith being linked very closely to your nationalism, to your nation, to your culture. Um, so the worship of gods in those days, as is the case today, um, wasn't just a matter of a belief in a in a higher being. This was uh, entwined with culture and not just culture, because culture was entwined also with politics. And the same thing, uh, if you look at Hinduism today, Hinduism apparently has what well, is three or thirty million gods spread through all about India and and maybe even beyond. Um, that those gods are quite localized, and so that god represents your particular state or your particular um, province or your. And so it was the same way with these days in polytheistic religions. What often is the case is that the god or gods that you worshipped were very cultural and nationalistic, and they were entwined with politics. You couldn't separate them from the politics. And polytheism, um, although it it allows you to add more and more gods to the whole plethora, because part of the thing about polytheism is that if there is a god, um, we don't want to upset them. And you remember when uh, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, saw the Greeks and saw an inscription on, a, uh, on a, an altar that said to the unknown God, the idea with uh, most polytheistic religions, you don't want to offend a God if he may be there or not, or if she may be there or not, or whatever else it is. Um, the idea is that you don't want to offend them. So you never deny their existence because they may come back and, uh, and haunt you some way. So, polytheism doesn't allow for the, in this particular case, for the rejection of gods. It would have been offensive to the king um, if people refused to bow down to his statue or the statue of his god. It would have been almost a direct challenge to his authority because it challenged his culture, it challenged his politics, his rule, and it would have been offensive to his god. So, he would have taken it as a direct offense to himself. The threat threat made by Nebuchadnezzar to throw um, resistors into a fire um, was actually formed for him. It wasn't an idle threat. You see, he had killed Zedekiah and Ahab the same way. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 21. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 21. And you'll see here that... This must have been something that he liked to do. This was his way of getting rid of people who were um, not following or subjecting themselves to him. Jeremiah twenty nine twenty one says Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, of Ahab the son of Kaloiah, and of Zedekiah the son of Masa, which prophesy a lie unto you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall slay them before your eyes. And of them shall be taken up a curse by all the captivity of Judah, which are in Babylon, saying, The Lord make thee like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Um, Looks like this was a a particular um, thing that he liked to do. But anyway, so these three young men were stuck in a precarious position. You see, they were rulers of the province of the of the capital of Babylon. It's a bit hard to hide if you're you're the rulers over there. Um, it wasn't, it couldn't, it, it, you couldn't have just like say, oh well, we're just going to hang this. We're not going to hang out here. We're just going to, you know, just uh, hang back and hide behind somewhere while everything else is going on. These guys are the, are the rulers. They had already been set as officials over that area, over the, the capital. And so it's a bit hard to go unnoticed when you're in those sorts of positions. And so they were the highest officials in Babylon. Um, they would have had to have been front and center in this ceremony, or at least expected to be there. They may have said, all right, we're not gonna take part of it, but they're gonna have to be there floating around somewhere. Um, And I suppose that the first lesson I I see in this is that um, this is the position they put themselves when they openly live their faith. And this, as Christians, um, you can hope to fly under the radar and not be noticed um, because you may want just a a peaceful life with no headaches and no problems. But if you're living for the Lord, there are going to be occasions when conflict is going to occur when we when we interact with the world around us. We we are not hermits here, we're not we don't live in monasteries with walls around us where we can do what we like and how we like. No no, we, we are called to interact with this world and there are times inevitably if you want to live for the Lord, if you choose to live for the Lord, that you will come in direct conflict with your society. That's not just here, that's in every society in the world. And you will come in contact, into conflict with your culture. Because while there are many cultures in the world, and some of those are quite nice and maybe have great foods and maybe there are things that are quite nice about them, every culture has things which are not good as well, which are in conflict with our faith. And so the question is, um, you may want to keep your faith quiet by keeping silent or try to avoid confrontation. But is not what God wants. Because Jesus says that a city, a, a city, uh, a, a city uh, you can't hide a city. A city is set on a hill. And a, and if we're lights in the world, you don't put it under a basket or a bushel. Um, the idea of a light, and we are called to be lights in this world, is to set it up high so everyone can see. And so Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, uh, were literally that city on a hill that was shining the light right at the top and it was pretty hard to hide. And by the same token, we are called to be the lights in this world. So not to be hidden treasures. We're called to be lights that are not afraid to live our faith and to speak our faith. And if that causes conflict with the culture that we live in, with the government that we live in, or whatever else may be going on, or with our friends and our families, unfortunately, it will occur. You can't have it both ways. Christians and Jews, um, if you notice, have historically been seen as intolerant, Jews especially. Um, one of the reasons that Jews have been persecuted throughout the ages is because, unlike most of the polytheistic nations that they were under, uh, under uh, uh, in, in throughout the throughout thousands of years, uh, or that come in contact with, they were not polytheistic, and they refused to worship their gods, and so they were seen as intolerant. They were seen as bigoted against their gods, and and when someone said, you know, when someone says my god doesn't exist, well, they got they got upset. They got they got upset with them. And the Jews historically have been persecuted because they were seen as troublemakers, as intolerant, um, because they refused to worship or acknowledge any other gods. But logically, if we worship one God and believe in one God, you can't actually have it any other way. You can't believe in the existence of one supreme being who is perfect in every way, who is who is the object of our worship, and then say, "Oh, I'm going to worship other gods too." It's just reason does not allow it in fact if you believe in this one god who has chosen to reveal himself through history and in the pages of the bible that we read which is essentially also a history book you may also come to the conclusion that if he is the highest authority then anyone else commanding you to, to to do something contrary to his commands must be disobeyed not only do we refuse to believe in the existence of other gods But when it comes to obeying, uh, the question is, can we submit ourselves fully to God and and, and to the world at the same time? And the answer to that question is no. You have to make a choice in some cases. And so if he is the ultimate or highest authority, then if someone comes along and says, "You, you have to do this, which is contrary, directly contrary to what he's saying, God God's saying then the call is the only reasonable thing or logical thing to do is to deny one, to deny that thing and to worship the higher authority. And so Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were obviously more than aware of this fact. And we see in verse 8 that they were accused by the Chaldeans. So Daniel 3.8 says, wherefore at that time, certain chaldeans came near and accused the jews they spake and said to the king nebuchadnezzar o king live forever thou our king has made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet flute harp sackbut psaltery and dulcimer and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image and whoso falleth not down and worshipeth that he should be cast in the midst of a burning fiery furnace there are certain jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, those three, Meshach, Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So while bowing down to an idol is not a big deal for a polytheistic pagan, it's strictly prohibited for God's people being the second of the Ten Commandments. Now, have a look at what happens when that time came when all that were assembled for that great occasion came. The Chaldeans, and if you remember that name, Chaldeans, they were the ones who were essentially humiliated. Um, When Daniel was able to give King Nebuchadnezzar the dream that he dreamed and the interpretation of it and they were, their heads were on the chopping block. Um, and they were probably the Chaldeans. If you look at the Chaldeans compared to the other wise men in the kingdom over there, they were the ones who always came, came forward and spoke on behalf of all the other wise men. So the Chaldeans were probably the highest in terms of the, the representatives for the king. They were in a very high position. But after they failed to, to grant king the king the interpretation of his dream they just couldn't do it and daniel did well daniel was elevated above them he became the 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 person who managed the king's own court and then you have these three shadrach meshach and abednego who were put over the affairs over the capital these were the guys who were like the mayors of, of of that city the king's own city, and so there was a demotion for the Chaldeans, and they weren't probably too fond of these Jews. Um, and they were probably looking for things to accuse them of and try to get you know even with them in some particular way. So they noticed they were probably keeping an eye on them when everyone else bowed down. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down at all. They were standing on their feet and not bowing down to anyone. Um, so while the music was playing, um, they weren't bowing down. So there was probably some animosity here. There was probably some, some good reason for them in their own minds to go and dob them in. Um, now, the, the scripture doesn't mention Daniel, you'll notice. Um, and we can be sure that Daniel would not have worshipped an idol, Um, it was probably the case that Daniel wasn't there for some reason or another. Um, So the Chaldeans, who had um, seen the three not bow down uh, when everyone else did, decided we're going to go to the king and don these guys in. Um, Probably because they wanted to cut them them down a few pigs, maybe get them out of the way so they could be elevated and promoted because they, they were more... Um, loyal to the king and, and the king's gods than these Jews were, and so they make the accusation against these three um, with probably a particular purpose in mind. So Daniel 3:12 says, and this was their accusation: There are certain Jews whom thou, you king, has set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regard, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. The fact that they remind the king that he was the one who set these Jews over the affairs of the kingdom shows, in essence, why they were doing this. They were essentially saying, these are the guys that you put there, king, and look at what they're doing. You know what I mean? That was probably a mistake you made, and if they're going to make you look like fools for having been so nice to them, well, king, you probably better do something about it because everyone's going to be talking about you behind your back. Um... So you know, politics can be a nasty game. Um, king, you put these people in charge and look what they're doing. In front of everyone, they are disrespecting you. So, so they interpret the reason to the king um, why these three didn't bow down. So in their own minds, they give the reason to the king and they essentially say, to King Nebuchadnezzar, you know what, king? We know why they're not bowing down. They don't care about you. They don't care about your gods and they don't care about your statue. In other words, how can they be rulers of your kingdom, rulers over your, your capital if they don't care about any of your stuff that you uh, find important? Uh, the Chaldeans were smart people. I mean, they weren't wise men for nothing. They knew how to push the king's buttons and they did. And they did it with great effect because his immediate response was to get angry and to call in these three. Um, What's interesting about this passage is that it reveals so clearly the nature of people and how a thirst for power and hatred caused them to devise plans to destroy others that they see as their obstacles. Um, What was happening here is exactly the same thing that Jesus experienced when he was simply teaching the truth to people and the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers of the day, the men who were meant to be the wise people okay, in Jerusalem, in Israel, saw him as a threat to them. Because he was not only uh, teaching something different to what they were teaching, but he was showing them up in front of people. So he was a threat to them. And we saw this on Wednesday evening. So if we'll turn to Luke chapter 20, verse 19 and 20. This is just one instance and one uh, passage that describes what these guys were up to. They saw Jesus as a threat. They didn't like him. They thought, how do we get rid of this guy? And so on Luke 20, verse 19, it says, And the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on him. They wanted to grab him okay, and do, and do away with him or do something with him. And they feared the people. For they perceived that, that he had spoken this parable against them. So, right, they they knew that the people liked him. They couldn't lay hands on him, otherwise the people would turn against them. So, what do they do? Verse twenty says, and they watched him, and sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men. In other words, they made out as if they feigned. They made out as if they were you know, good men who really cared about Jesus and believed in what he was saying. A bit like, you know, when the Chaldeans came before Nebuchadnezzar and said, oh, king, live forever. We love you. We're your loyal subjects. You know what I mean? Not these other guys. And so they feigned themselves just men. And it says that they might take hold of his words that, that that so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the government. So what they they trying to do? What were the Jews trying to do in this particular case, the priests and the scribes? Well, they were trying to catch Jesus out so they could dob him in. And who were they trying to dob him into? They wanted to dob him into the Roman authorities because they didn't have the authority to kill him. But they knew the Romans could. So in this particular passage, and you can take this time to read it yourself. This is the passage where they asked Jesus, is it lawful to, to pay tribute to Caesar? And so Jesus says, well, show me a coin and whose face is on that coin? He gives us rendered to Caesar that which is Caesar's and, and to God, that those things which are God's. And he stumped them because if he had said simply, no, it's not right, they would have dobbed him straight into the actual Romans. But if he said, yes, pay, pay tribute to Caesar or do whatever, do whatever Caesar asked you to do simply, then people would have said, hang on a sec, is he a Roman sympathizer? So they were trying to catch him out, but ultimately they were trying to hand him across and dob him into the Roman authorities. They wanted him dead, and the Romans were going to be able to do that for him. No one else. Um, The truth of the matter is, if your faith is public and you speak the truth in public, you must be prepared to be disliked or even hated by some people because of it. You know, for those who feel threatened by your speech or your lifestyle, there have been a situation where people are doing something. You may go out with some work colleagues or whatever, and they're maybe drinking away and drinking a lot of alcohol, and they say, Do you want something? And you say, No, I'll have something else, let's say, for instance. Um, One of the first things that comes to people's mind is, Why and is he judging me? And oftentimes, Unfortunately, that's the case. That, that is normally the case that occurs. People feel threatened when you don't do what they do or follow their lifestyle or speech. Um, and they feel threatened. And so what people normally do when they, they have something they don't understand or they, they fear is they try to eliminate that threat. Um, and this has become, in our culture, almost the way of life in this generation of social media. Um, it's very easy to ruin someone <clears throat> for something they said, which contradicts the group mentality. You know what? If, if someone says something, they'll even dig it out from years and years ago. Um, look at what he said here. So let's, let's cut them out. Let's cut them off. Let's, um, let's cancel them. Um, and being canceled, I can imagine, is a very you know, unpleasant experience. For people, especially if you're canceled by your friends or or um, or you're, you know, or you're ostracized by people that you liked. Um, it's not just Christians that get uh, get canceled or ostracized. You know, it's it's a lot of different people who disagree. And, and unfortunately, we have a high suicide rate um, among teens in our, in our country and among the Western world because. Where they say something that doesn't exactly follow the the group mentality or the herd mentality, they are treated very badly on um, on social media. And unfortunately, teens can be quite fragile with their um, with their ego. And where they say that they've been ostracized or torn down in public on social media, sometimes they go to extremes and choose to end it all. Um being cancelled or being made a fool of or being ostracised among your peers can be a very painful thing, I can imagine. But for Christians, um, if we live our faith, if we speak our faith, if we simply speak the truth, it's inevitably going to lead to greater persecution over time. This is because our culture worships to a greater and greater degree itself as the ultimate authority. In other words, the culture worships itself, okay? Um, and And just as there were silversmiths in the Apostle Paul's day, if you remember, who got very upset when Paul and Barnabas were spreading the gospel and people were turning to Christ and they stopped buying little trinkets and silver things of Diana and they stopped buying little idols to worship uh, that would put in their homes, um, they they got upset and they turned against Paul and they wanted to kill him. Okay. Um, so there are craftsmen in our day, like those craftsmen in those days, who don't fashion idols made of silver, but with culture. They seek to mold the culture um, in an image they want. Okay? And these days, there's a particular phrase for that called, it's called social engineering, okay? And so you'll find certain people pushing agendas and they keep on pushing agendas um, because they're trying to put pressure on the culture to fashion it in a particular way. You know, they increase the the heat on edges that they they might see as a rough. They put pressure on places that maybe stick out too much, that don't conform to that particular image, Um, And they do this through media, through policy, through social structures, through workplaces, and so on and so on. Um, Public humiliation and public pressure works wonders against people who don't have a foundation of what they actually believe, who are easily swept along with the culture because there is no foundation for their truth. In other words, their truth becomes wherever they are pushed into and they have to conform, otherwise they lose their friends and their standing. They can be swayed and moulded to fit the culture that certain individuals are trying to mould because they are fearful of being denounced and cut off. And so they conform to it. But I'd remind you that Jesus, when he was being pressured by the leaders of his day, by the culture of his day, did not back down from telling the truth. He didn't change his message. He didn't change the way he lived. Jesus ultimately stayed the course and was faithful to God. And these three men also are not going to back down and compromise their faith because they knew full well that culture changes. And civilizations come and go, but God does not. So my encouragement to you is stand firm on the word of God. The word of God does not change. Neither does the God that we serve change in the least. This God who we are reading about now is the same today as he was two and a half thousand years ago, as he will be forever. So don't go about seeking trouble but simply speak the truth and simply let your lives reflect the truth that this God has shown us because ultimately he is the truth. And so our speech, as the Bible says, should always be seasoned with salt. It should always be gracious in the way it speaks. We shouldn't shouldn't be troublemakers. We shouldn't be people who cause fights. But ultimately, if we are... A push or trying to be pressured to go into some something, or the flames are turned up to try to force us into a particular direction, which is contrary to where God would have us go. The Bible tells us to stand firm because the truth that we have placed our feet down on, that we are standing firmly upon, is a truth that does not change. It has not changed in two and a half thousand years. It has not changed in six thousand years. It will never change because God does not change many civilizations have come and gone cultures are changing year after year and what was what is here today was was not here a year ago or 10 years ago culture changes and we should never be victims and we should never be at the mercy of our culture because our culture is eternal so let's continue daniel chapter 3 verse 13 It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they brought these men, then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, Sacred, Psaltery, and Dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall, uh, you fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, in the words, okay. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? In rage and with anger, he has these three men brought before him and appears that Nebuchadnezzar valued them enough to give them a chance. He probably saw through the jealousy that motivated the Chaldeans to accuse him. So, and, and them being officials in his, uh, in his capital, wanted to give them a chance to prove to him their loyalty. And he grants them an opportunity to show that loyalty. And he says, all right, I'm going to give you a go. Because I'm not going to take their accusation, but what I'm going to test you to see whether you'll do this or not. <clears throat> Maybe obviously he hadn't seen them himself. So... He says to them, "When the music cranks up and the orchestra starts playing again, um, if you bow down like everyone else does, good, fine, no problems at all. But if you don't, I'm going to throw you in that furnace, like I've probably, like I've burnt other Jews like you before. And who's going to save you? So the stage is set. The orchestra is ready to play." but they give a response before the orchestra plays. And their response is this. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So the response given by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego provides us, two and a half thousand years later, the perfect response when we are challenged to obey earthly laws over God's laws. Firstly, I want you to notice they weren't disrespectful to the king. They didn't go arguing and saying you know how dare you ask us something like that um, no they, they simply uh, gave an explanation okay um, Where it says you'll notice it says they were not careful well that simply means that they weren't afraid or they were, they didn't have to take a lot of time to think about this because they already knew the answer. they essentially said to the King King we're not too worried about how we're going to answer you because this is the simple truth. They weren't looking to smooth over the king or work out some, you know, shifty argument to try to win him back over again and try to get the Chaldeans in trouble or try to shift the blame onto them somehow. They didn't go attacking anyone else. They didn't go telling the king what a silly decision he'd made by making this statue in the first place. Um, They simply stated that they knew that God could save them from this thing, regardless of what the king said. And they simply stated their faith in God and his abilities, and that they were yielded to him more than what they were yielded to anyone else in the world, regardless of what these authorities or people would choose to do to them. Contrary to the king's claim of absolute power to condemn them, they knew that their lives were ultimately in God's hands, and they were at peace. Even if obeying them, they said, would cost them their lives, They were ready to be saved by God. They were ready to die for God. Either way, they said, they weren't going to be bowing down to this statue nor worshipping his gods. Now, there are many occasions in this world when obedience to God will mean persecution, even to the point of martyrdom. You know, church history, if you you spend time reading church history, uh, it's filled with stories such as this where Christians went to their death because of what they believed in. And it continues to to this day, especially in places where communism uh, is is in rule, where Islamic lands are are in play. Um, There are plenty of Christians who are martyred uh, these days, and I'm I'm hoping to actually um, have soon at our church, when these lockdowns finish, um, uh, uh, some representatives of Voice of the Martyrs, who essentially keep a track of how Christians are being persecuted and and martyred around the world. It's interesting, there are actually probably more Christians being being martyred and persecuted these days than almost any other day in history. Um, As God's people, though, Christians are called to have that sort of trust in God's ability um, and yield themselves to the Lord regardless of the outcome. They believe God could save them. But they said, even if he doesn't save us, we're still, not going, we're still going to obey him rather than man. These men didn't know that God would save them. We're reading a story here and we're saying, all right, we know the end. But they did not know that God would save them from this fiery furnace. They simply said, whatever happens, we believe in our God. We believe in his ability, but we're not going to bow down to anyone else. They knew he could. They They knew that God had the ability to save them from the fire, but they didn't presume that he would. And so they were happy to face death for him. Now, this type of trust in God produces a peace that surpasses all comprehension. You see, I can imagine the look on the king's face or the, the expressions on the face of the people around them when these guys, who in prominent positions, who probably had a really good lifestyle, who were uh, uh, who were probably um, respected and held up, um, telling this king who had the authority over life and death, "King, we're not going to obey you. We're going to obey our God." They'll probably flabbergasted. They'll probably shocked to hear the words coming out of their mouth, and they'll probably shocked to see the peace that these three had. It was a peace that would have that would have gone beyond what their understanding was because in our world and in their world, to die was the end of the line. It was the end of you. Um, So there was nothing more really to it than that. So they probably couldn't understand how they could have that sort of faith or how they could have that sort of peace and have that sort of confidence in actually uh, speaking to the king in that way. Um, But the peace that comes from trusting in God, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the outcome, provides you with a peace and a confidence in facing a future, even when it looks grim. This type of faith and this confidence in God is the reason that thousands upon thousands of believers over the ages have gone to their death singing. That many of them were thrown into the Colosseum and ripped apart by wild beasts but didn't scream out. In others, they refused to bow down to idols of emperors or to worship other gods or to make professions that weren't real. That has occurred throughout all of history. In fact, the Bible says that all who live godly are going to suffer persecution. And in some countries in the world, that persecution leads to death. In other countries, you may be ostracized. In other countries, you may be be kicked out of your own family. In some countries, other things may occur, depending on what culture you live in. But how you or I might respond to a similar circumstance depends on our quality of faith in the Lord. You see, when you're in that position, all of a sudden, whether you have silver in your faith or whether you have gold in your faith, is actually going to come out. The reality is, though, for us, is that we do face many similar things in our lives. But a lot of smaller things that are much less dramatic. OK, we, we face a lot of things every day that challenge our trust and submission to God and how you and I respond to those are an indication of what would happen if we were to face that life or death situation. Now, we'd probably all like to think, I could do this. You know, if I was in their place, I would say to that same king, not going to do it. But my question to us today is this. If we can't say no to the little things in life that contradict our faith, how do we know we would have the strength to say when the big things come along, like life and death? You know, life in Australia as many blessings that we as we have in this country, still offers us plenty of challenges to our faith. We have plenty of opportunities um, to, for our faith to be tested, whether it's peer pressure, whether it's pressure at school or pressure at work or pressure from social uh, aspects or pressure from government. There are plenty of opportunities in our lives where our faith is tested, where we can exercise our faith and our faith can actually be strengthened. What would you do, for instance, if your friends said, oh, let's go and see a movie that contains blasphemies and immorality and ultimately is a rejection of God? Would you go? Well, what about if some of your friends said, oh, let's, let's go to a, let's go into a restaurant and then they find themselves getting drunk and you're in the midst of them um, and they say, come on, why aren't you drinking as well? Or what about when your friends may tell crude jokes at work or around the dinner table um, and the pressure is on to laugh along with that joke? What about where there's pressure on you to lie, to cover up something, or to make yourself look good in front of others who you know? Those pressures, those things reveal a lot about our faith. Imagine for a moment you're a student at a university and the the lecturer in your class is an avid evolutionist or is contrary to God, he's an atheist. And so he begins a discussion in the class that essentially says that, you know, there is no God or that Jesus is a myth or the Bible is not true or that we, we weren't specially created. Would you stay silent in the class or would you speak up, knowing that you may be seen in a different light afterwards? Or what about if you had to hand in a paper or an essay that spoke about those similar topics? Would you write what you believe? Would you speak up or would you stay silent? What about, what about if your boss at work tells you to lie about a product in order to sell it? Would you do it? Or what about if you were told to lie in a timesheet? Or what about if your boss might offer you a pay rise or a promotion if you would work on all Sundays, on Sundays? What would you do? How would you respond? The way we respond is really indicative of where our faith is whether our faith is weak whether it's whether it's strong or otherwise what if one day the government says you're not supposed to share your faith anymore it becomes against the law or that handing out a tractor a bible became something illegal how would you and i respond to that the truth is our faith is being tested and revealed each and every day of our lives. And how we respond to all those little things that happen, whether we hide away, whether we don't speak the truth, whether we hide the truth, whether we speak boldly, whether we get ourselves into arguments, reveals a lot about our own faith, reveals whether the faith is strong or whether it is otherwise. And how we respond to all these little tests are either an opportunity to grow or an opportunity that simply reveals where we're at. We should always remember this, that God doesn't allow us to go through tests and trials in order to see us fail. But every trial, every persecution, every problem that we go through is an opportunity to grow. God doesn't let us go through bad things. God doesn't let us go through tests of our faith to see us fall down. He wants every situation to help us to grow in that faith because ultimately your faith is more precious than gold to him. Just as Nebuchadnezzar saw this golden statue and it's precious to him, God sees your faith as a precious thing. And his goal is to strengthen your faith. Turn with me just as we close up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. And I'll leave you with this thought. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 and 7. It says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, through manifold temptations, through multiple temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of us living in this world. That is the purpose that God allows his children to go through difficult times. That is the purpose. Being lights in the world. So I want you to encourage. I want to encourage every one of you today as I close up this message, and we'll we'll look at the result of these three men stand next week and their literal test of fire. I want you to think about your faith, where it's at, how you respond how much pressure is being put on you and how much you and I have compromised in our faith and whether our faith is growing or whether it's compromised to the point where we are so content with looking like the culture that we live in that we won't grow, that we've become stagnant because we're too afraid to stick out. We're too afraid to be noticed. I want to challenge you today. Get noticed. Live your faith. Don't be afraid to speak the truth. I don't want you to go looking for trouble, but I want you to stand firm when the pressures and the fires and the trials and tribulations come your way. Live your life openly. Let people know who you are. Pray each day for that strength. Pray each day that your, your faith would grow and that God will give you the strength to stand firm and resist the temptation to give in to the world that seeks to pressure you into its mould. Put God first. Refuse to bow down to the idols of this world, whatever the consequences may be. May the Lord bless you this week. May he cause your faith to grow. May may his grace uh, continue to grow. be moulded into the image that's most important, the image of His Son. God bless you. Uh, May you have a wonderful week. I'll close in a word of prayer and I'll thank you once again for joining us this day. God bless you all. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time and for this day. Father, we thank you for the blessing it is knowing you and having Jesus Christ in our lives. We pray that our faith would be strengthened each and every day, that we... As, each, as we face each test and each trial, Father, would come through stronger because of it. We thank you, Lord, even for those trials, even for those tribulations, even for the persecutions, Lord, that we might grow closer to you. We thank you for your word and we thank you that we have such a strong foundations to stand upon. We thank you that our Saviour is the same yesterday and today and forever. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon.